what possibly could go right is historians look back on our time and they say that was the beginning of the caring economy. That was the beginning of the economy moving back into a place where it cared for the people and the planet that we live on. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute. We interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, and social artists, people who take the pulse of the times and create. In this time when so much seems to be coming apart, for sure much is coming together that we can't see. Our guests help us to see more clearly and act more courageously in this potent time of change. Today's guest is Gwen Hallsmith. I met Gwen over 25 years ago at an international meeting of systems thinkers. She is always up to something transformative in applying systems theory to local economies, so I invited her to join us. Gwen is the executive director of Global Community Initiatives, a nonprofit organization she founded in 2002, and they just celebrated their 20th anniversary. She's the author of six books on sustainable community and economic development and has worked with communities all over the world to foster caring communities, vibrant local economies, good governance, efficient services, and healthy ecosystems. She founded Vermonters for a New Economy to work on economic solutions at a state level and the Headwaters Garden and Learning Center, an eco-village in Cabot, Vermont. She and her husband, Michael Taub, sing in a folk duo called The New Economistas. She has a master's degree in public policy from Brown University and did additional graduate work at the University of British Columbia and Andover Newton Divinity School. And now let's welcome Gwen. Hey, Gwen Hallsmith, welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right. I am thrilled to have you say yes to this. You are like an older sister of another mister to me. You, you think big picture. You cultivate your inner life while making waves in the world. You advocate for alternatives to how we could do business that you really believe will work. You are visionary and practical and fun. You believe in community solutions, not just Lone Ranger heroics. You've risked and failed and stood up to the powers that be in positions that you've held in Vermont and elsewhere, and you keep on trucking. So <laughs> I'm glad you came into my life 25 years ago and that I've been able to sort of trail along behind you ever since. So, you know, the premise of what could possibly go right is that within every breakdown, there are seeds of breakthrough. If we water and cultivate them, it's not a given what future will emerge, but our guests help us peer on the horizon for promising next steps that could tilt our world toward justice and conviviality. I know you have a framework for economic transformation that rhymes with a sacred Hindu sound and you could go there, but you could also just freewheel for us about present occurrences that have piqued your interest. So with that, in the face of all that is going awry, Gwen, what could possibly go right? Wow, what, what could possibly go right from my point of view is that historians 100 years from now will look back on our time as the time at the beginning of the end of capitalism. Mm. 
we are transitioning into a different thing. Now, I, I can't say I am completely sure what that different thing is, but what possibly could go right is we, historians look back on our time and they say that was the beginning of the caring economy. That was the beginning of econ the economy moving back into a place where it cared for the people and the planet that we live on instead of the pursuit of profit and all of the things that we take for granted in the capitalist society. That's an interesting statement. You say go back to a caring economy. So yeah, I think in, in, in when did in, we have one? And I and, think we look back in, in prehistory, right? Where we were living a lot closer to the land, a lot in more harmony with the natural environment and a more tribal system than we have now, for sure. We didn't have the kind of problems that we have today. It, there was a lower population on the planet. There was lots of things that were working right for them at the time. But when you look way back in history to the era where we were matrilineal instead of patriarchal, to the era where you know, we had a relationship with the earth, if we didn't have that relationship, we didn't survive. Um, that I think of as more of a caring economy than we have now. But there's also a forward part of that too. There's clearly things that we've learned and done and created as human beings that can help us get there a lot more effectively than, than in prior times. I mean, we are in the age of miracles, really. You know, I think back to my childhood and, and the idea that I could have a little thing in my pocket that not only could call home, right, but could get me access to the entire world of information in less time than it took me to walk to the library to get out a book. That's a miracle. You know, drones are miracles. All these things that we've created are pushing us forward into an era that we haven't clearly seen yet. But there are glimpses and seeds, just like you talk about. I think, you know, looking at that economic construct I was talking about, we see more sharing. Now, admittedly, some of those sharing things like Airbnb and Uber and that are also companies that are producing a profit, but it, it does enable everyday people to get involved in the tourist industry, for example, and benefit from it when before that was the purview of large corporations. And so that's sharing effectively the tourist industry with lots of different people. Worker co-ops, worker-owned um, companies, ESOPs, you know, the implied stock ownership programs, all of those things are dimensions of sharing instead of all one person or, or one set of shareholders controlling the whole lot. You know, sharing is actually something that is seen a lot in indigenous societies. Um, there was a very interesting story I heard by an archaeologist, an anthropologist that went to Africa. And when this team of anthropologists came to this community, the community, all their doors were oriented toward the central fire. And when somebody had some good luck with hunting or fishing or something and brought home a lot of stuff, it was shared with the community quite openly, naturally, not any difficulty around it. But these same anthropologists brought these little tokens to show their appreciation that the native community had never seen. And they started collecting and hoarding those little tokens. And over the time that the anthropologists were there, the doors 
the buildings changed, you know, the amount of sharing in the community changed. So the introduction of this scarce exchange mechanism actually affected the way the community behaved. And that's true now on a global scale with our current monetary system. I know, you know, I'm not a fan of it, but um, (laughs) (laughs) it's anti-sharing, you know, it's hoarding. If we looked at any society down through time and found that one person was hoarding all the food and resources and leaving the rest of their little community, their little tribe to starve, we would think they were sick. But that's what's happening now on a global scale with the creation of the economic elite that actually do just that. They hoard all the resources, all the things for themselves, and they're letting the rest of the world and Mother Nature starve. Where do you see chinks in that, though? I mean, like... All of us rail against this, you know, the system and, you know, we're, we're sort of like sharing around the edges, but are there chinks in that armor? I don't know that where there's so much chinks in the armor as there are the demands of human needs that are going to come in a collision course with that system and already are, you know, that, that we, as human beings, we have to eat, we have to shelter ourselves. We need we need to have community. We need to have power over our own lives. We need a sense of caring that we share with our neighbors and our children and our elders. And all of those needs now are being moved into service to the profits of the larger economy, but that can't last. And I think that what we'll see is over time, these new forms that arise because of the failure of the old system like the sharing and gig economy, like cryptocurrency, like all of the new innovations we've seen in time banks and care banks and um, commercial barter systems and food currencies and all the things that people are trying out now on a partial local basis will grow and flourish if we know to water them and tend them, like you say. You know, these are seeds and you have to plant them and then they grow. You know, I I started a time bank in Montpelier. Now a time bank is a pretty interesting thing. I see you you talk to Stephanie Rarick, who's great with her yes. mutual aid system. I mean, she's yeah. a time banker from way back. Um, but in a time bank, you basically exchange money instead of I mean, time instead of money. And everybody's time is worth the same. It's not more valuable because you're a trained doctor or a um lawyer than it is if you're a babysitter because even trained doctors and lawyers need babysitters. That's what makes it, you know, a complementary currency instead of an alternative, you know, central currency. It's something that happens around the edges of the existing system, but that can fill some really critical human needs at the same time. Um, Commercial barter systems, of course, the system in Switzerland, the Veer system is very successful. That started at the end of the depression back in the 1900s. So it's been in place now for over 80 years. And it's a lot of the reason that the Swiss economy is as successful as it is, because it actually has two currencies that they use. One is this Veer, which is the commercial barter currency that's denominated in Swiss francs, but it isn't Swiss francs. And the other is the Swiss franc. You know, So economic studies have been done on it and showed that when the economy goes down, the use of the Veer goes up. And when the economy does better, the use of the, the veer goes down. So it serves as a counter-cyclical balance to the crazy business cycle that the monetary system and the markets have us in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's zillions of examples like that all over the world. 
um, of like in Bali, for example, there's a really cool dual currency system called the Narayan Banjar, which is a neighborhood caring system that uh, people use for their ceremonial things and their community celebration events like weddings and funerals and other things that, that you're expected to serve in the Banjar, which is the group for the neighborhood club. Um, to prepare for those events. And if you don't, you know, nobody comes to your funeral either. <laughs> there was actually <laughs> a story of a rich guy in Valley who had been in the hotel business or something, and he never had time for the little neighborhood stuff. And when he died, nobody came to his funeral. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement about the power of that currency. He was a very wealthy man. Can you imagine in the United States having a very wealthy man die and nobody shows up for the funeral? It's like unheard of. So there's lots of those examples. And of course, that Bali example is from a long time. It, it's been in place for millennia, I think. It's not something new, like time banks. Time banks are pretty new. Um, and cryptocurrency, of course, is in a, a sort of an alternative monetary system, but it's linked so strongly to the current system that you can't really call it a complementary or an alternative currency. You have to have a bank account to get it. It's artificially scarce, just like the existing monetary system is. So it's more of a payment vehicle, really, than it is another form of money. Although I think the promise that blockchain offers us and the decentralization of financial um, accounting and accountability is really promising. I mean, that's a disruptive technology for sure, but it hasn't been used to its full potential yet. Yeah, as so you're talking, you know, what occurs to me, and I, this is not a Debbie Downer statement. It's sort of like I'm looking at a systems view here. And, and you know, you mentioned cryptocurrency. Well, right in the middle of that implosion sure. of the major, major player taking down at least one other major player. I mean, something, some multi-billions of dollars gone, apparated, gone, just gone. So. You that know, happens with bank crashes too. What? That happens with bank crashes too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Poof. It's like, and it's these moments where you realize that, you know, we're living in a fabricated set of structures and that they're, um, they're not guaranteed at the edges. There's experiments going on and you can participate at the edges and you could make it out, make out like a bandit and you could crash and burn. But what I'm noticing in what you're talking about, because I have many examples of like little local currencies, crashing, burning, you know, like people work for two years to get it up and running and it fizzles in, you know, like six months. But so do you see this as, as sort of the necessary churn around the edges? Do you see these like local failures of small things that just get smaller? Is this like, like humanity learning how to do it differently. I mean, it just occurs to me as I as I think about it, I just read something this morning about like, oh, now electric vehicles are going to be like, you know, cheap. It's going to be like, you know, little figurines in a Cracker Jacks box, you know, and I was an early adopter 10 years ago, you know, and like, you know, I got one of the first electric cars, you know, and it went like 60 miles. And and so it's it's like these these innovations are sort of like useless artifacts until suddenly they're not. You know what I mean? It's like some well, of the 
experiments are going to take off and some are going to be like just failed experiments that we learn from. How do you read that, that sort of edge of like coming into being and dying, coming into being this sort of creative edge? How do you read that? Well, if you look at another major transition that happened in the economy about 400, 500 years ago between feudalism and capitalism, you know, that's a place to take some lessons from because that didn't just, that wasn't just born out of whole cloth. And so when I'm talking about historians seeing this as the end of capitalism and the beginning of something that I'm hoping is the caring economy, the, the, the economy with care and hope and love at the center of it instead of profit and competition and all the other things that come with that. Um, there were lots of little experiments then too. You know, there people starting up little businesses, people trying to sell things on the street corner as the clearances drove people off the land. You know, the my ancestors came to this continent because of the highland clearances in Scotland. So um, it was a big transition. There was a big grab of more power, more land by the elite. Can we compare that to current times? You know, big power grabs because they could and the system encouraged it. You know, I think most of the people that get into power these days are textbook sociopaths because in order to succeed in this crazy economy, you have to be, you know, horrible to other people. You know, look at what's going on in, you know, the most publicly uh, public case of that with Elon Musk and his Twitter takeover and firing half the employees and demanding that the other employees work twice as hard. You know, it's it's just, that's not a nice thing to do. That's not kind and loving and, and hopeful. So what happened then is you had this big displacement and people had to sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps, try new things. Often those new things didn't succeed, but eventually they did. And, and we had urbanization and, and the concentration of capital that transformed the economy. If you look at the the value of land as a portion of GDP back then, let's say in the 1600s, early 1700s, it was very high. It was a huge part of GDP. It came down to almost nothing today. Well, what we might be looking at in the future is that the value of all the things that we think of as so important in the economy now will also see a significant change in relationship to the entire economy partially through the acknowledgement of the fact that there's a lot of the economy that we don't currently count in GDP. You know, the metrics are another lever in the system to change it. I, they're the least powerful one of the five that I've identified, but they're still an important one. And, you know, when GDP doesn't include, for example, toilet training the children, <laughs> you know, how much money do you think it would cost <laughs> to toilet train a child if right. you had to buy it in the market, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or feeding the family or, you know, all the things that have been in the purview of the women's side of things down through time. All of those are excluded from GDP, but they're a part of a core economy, that core caring economy that we all need to survive. You know, you wouldn't be a successful businessman if you'd never been toilet trained. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a really interesting scatological conversation. Um, <laughs> but um, so, so you said this, it's one of the five levers. So let's, why don't we just like do the levers so that we okay. have the picture of what you're thinking. 
all of the economic structures that we, we sort of live in this economic box. That's one way I tell the story. You know, the other one is the ohm, <laughs> but we live in an economic box and that box is structured out of a bunch of different laws, customs, human created things that we've all tacitly agreed to most of the time without even knowing. The top lever is ownership. You know, the culture of ownership, the legal structures around ownership, the amount of ownership that you're allowed to extend into the outside world, all of that is the highest lever point in, in the economic box. The second, and it's a close second, is money. You know, the monetary system is a human invention. It's not a naturally occurring thing. You know, people seem to think, oh, you can't change that. And oh, yeah, you can. In fact, they changed it in our lifetime <laughs> a couple times. Mm. So, you know, the, the change that happened in the 70s was earth shaking. In Canada, up until the early 70s, the National Bank was a public bank. They built the St. Lawrence Seaway. They implemented public health care. They did all these great, large publicly funded projects with what was effectively public money. But in the 70s, when the Bank of International Settlements imposed all these rules and other new conventions on things, when Nixon took us off the Bretton Woods system, essentially, then everything changed. And we we, we went from what was sort of a kind of sort of gold-based economy, or you know, at least there was some remnants of that economy in place then, to a debt-based economy. That happened in the early 70s. I was alive then. I wasn't, you know, an adult and interacting with the world, but it was a huge change, huge change to the system. And most of us, most of the people that were living back then, we still think something's based on gold. We we don't understand that it's based on debt. Then that makes a whole, it turns the whole system kind of upside down. And you know, in Canada, when that happened, they went from having zero national debt to now expon it the, the debt curve grew exponentially as it shifted from being public money, which is money that the public creates essentially for things the public wants, um, to a private finance system, which essentially imposes this hidden interest tax on everything that we own and buy. Um, My colleague, Margaret Kennedy, um, may she rest in peace, did a study in Germany of the hidden tax of this private financial system on the German economy. And the hidden tax for housing was up to 70% of the cost of the housing. Right. The lowest one was the solid waste um, hidden tax. And that was about 25% because a lot of the solid waste um, doesn't have to finance the big things that that housing does um, in Germany. Anyway, I'd be really interested to see a similar study in North America because I think that hidden tax would be much, much higher. You know, we pay a lot more for our public services and our public um, goods, goods like bridges, roads, hospitals, schools, because of the role of private finance in that. And um, so that system can change. It's also very, very important for making a transformation. And then the other three are the ones we're kind of familiar with. We're told, oh, the market, that's the most important thing. It's actually the third thing that and the third in line in terms of powerful leverage points for changing the economy but how do we change the markets we we mandate organic food organic the organic food regulation system changed the market and made now organic food a lot more readily available to all of us we outlaw gmos or we require at least them to 
to put labels on the food saying this is a genetically modified organism mm-hmm. and then you don't buy it. That's a market modification that, that works in our favor. There's more than plenty of them <laughs> that work against us, you know, and, and we've sort of, we're asleep at the wheel, I think, as a people, because we've allowed these huge monopolistic markets to be created, like, oh, in computer software, for example, where <laughs> Couple yeah. people own the entire system. You know that's that's crazy. Um, it, it there may be some sense in standardization, but that doesn't mean somebody has to have monopoly control over it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then management. Now management is the M that you know includes all the stuff like socially responsible practices and ecological bottom lines and multiple, you know, bottom line accounting. It has failed. That idea has mostly failed. Not that it isn't good for individual companies or individual circumstances, but it hasn't slowed the rate of climate change, hasn't slowed the rate of biodiversity destruction. It's We're still heading for an incredible crash. And then metrics is the last one. You know, we measure things with GDP. We don't care about happiness or well-being, but happiness and well-being is actually what we should be measuring instead of just productivity. Because, you know, when the Valdez sank in the Arctic, <laughs> there was GDP went up, but because all these people were paid to go and wash birds off and clean the beaches and everything else that went with that huge environmental disaster, but that didn't make anybody better for it. So the the other thing I think that really the kind of technological logic that we see now, like Amazon laying off thousands of employees and replacing them with robots, plus the pandemic, you know, has is this idea of universal basic income. Universal mm. basic income would totally change the system because people wouldn't necessarily have to work in to ward off starvation and, and penury, right? They could have a basic income to meet their basic needs. And then the work they could do would be the kind of work they love to do, to reach their human potential, to um, actually make a positive contribution to the world. So I think there's a lot of things that that's a that's a seed that's being watered in Finland. Finland has experimented with basic income. There's a number of cities around the country that are experimenting with basic income. In Ireland, they gave artists a basic income to see if that would help with the creative economy. So that's another thing mm. that can actually be really a positive development as it gets more widely adopted. And, you know, I'm sorry, but when you're looking at what happened during the pandemic with either the um, PPP system, you know, mm-hmm. that the U.S. rolled out, which is nowhere near as good as what they did in Canada. They just basically, um, you know, replaced people's income for some time with these these basic payments as they had to stay home and keep safe during the pandemic. So we've had a real taste of what universal basic income looks like. And now as I'm retired and getting a pension and social security, I can attest to the fact that it's fantastic. I don't live high on the hog. I mean, I'm not rich, but I don't have to worry anymore about finding some kind of soul destroying job to, to stay alive. And, and that might be one of the features of capitalism that we'll miss the, the least, you know, right. <laughs> um, well, now you're over in the, you know, in the narrative that I was, I've been part of for so many years, which is basically, if it's the owners of wealth who actually can, can buy leisure for themselves, then, then, you know, transferring from being a wage earner to an owner of wealth is, is a strategy for the ordinary person 
to buy themselves some breathing room, you know, and that's really what your money, your life, that's part of, you know, the mechanics of what was being promoted is like, you know, I used to say, I buy my freedom with my frugality every day. You know, the less I, the less money I spend, the more I have, the longer it lasts, you know, just like, like things like that is sort of like the, the little guy fights back, but fights back with the tools of capitalism somehow, you know, so I have engineered in my own life, a life in which I didn't have to work for money, you know, and it sounds like, you know, people can go off and see my other work, you know, um, if they're interested. But um, I've thought about that, about the universal basic income. And I had an idea that I've pitched to people, I'm just going to pitch it to you which is that if it were coupled with universal service, in other words, if your lifetime of a stipend, a monthly stipend, were coupled to a year and a half of public service, at whatever point in your life you do that, you could do it when you're you know, 15, you can do it when you're 50, then it starts to crank out that basic sort of foundational, you will not starve. Um, regular deposit into your bank account. And the universal service can be, it can be military, but it could be, you know, interning with a nonprofit organization. It's, it could be anything, but you all come together for three months of basic training, which is not just running around, you know, tracks, but, but three months of basic training of basically adulting, you know, like all the things that you never learned about how to adult. (laughs) Right. Well, Europe runs on that. A lot of things in Europe run on that public service requirement. Like I lived in a echo village there, well, an intentional community there called Botten Village for a while. And a lot of their people that ran that place were doing their service. They were doing their universal service from all over Europe. So really, and we, we have, you know, AmeriCorps and Vista here that is a little bit like that, but it's not mandatory and it's not as big as it is in Europe. In Europe, you have to do public service, either in the military or civil service for, I think it's two years. And it runs a lot of the charitable stuff that goes on over there. It runs a lot of the alternative, you know, things that are happening. Um, that was in England. If you link it to, to basic income, then you realize that you don't have to give a basic income to everyone, only to the people who've chosen to enter into that service system. So there will be people who say, who blow it off and go like, I don't need that. I'm going to go be a banker. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, you know, that how do we. Because- well, I, also think, I also think that the that, that part of the universal basic income conversation could be around in what kind of money, you know, because one of the big concerns, of course, with basic income would be it would put all this new money chasing fewer and fewer goods into the system and driving inflation like we're seeing now. Um, if you didn't have you know, this one form of monopoly money (laughs) that had to do everything, but you had, you know, a food currency and an energy or carbon currency, and you had a creative currency or data currency, and you had a business currency, you know, and people would get like five, not hundreds, not an unmanageable amount, but just a little ecosystem of money. Then you wouldn't be risking the kinds of other disruptions that that might cause. And, and so, and there you could earn more of whatever it was by being frugal. You could earn carbon currency by biking to work. You could earn carbon currency by taking a bus, you know, 
you could do all sorts of things that um, cut down your ecological footprint and get paid for it. You could earn carbon currency for regenerative agriculture, which, by the way, is one of the most critical things we should be investing in right now if we really want to last longer than the next 50 years on the planet. Exactly. Um, this is like, this is year number two on your list, you know, ownership. If we could like, you know, like return the commons to the commons, that that would just, that would be the total game changer. And also but, limit, limit what individuals can own. I mean, I, I think that that like this, these sort of giant sized individuals we get that are just as crazy as the next person, less educated sometimes than the next, right. that, that then can own vast quantities of the productive capacity of our planet. That's just somehow out of balance and wrong. I think there needs to be limits. I, I But I don't think that mm. private ownership is a bad idea for your house and your garden. And your, you know, the things totally. that people I need, are yeah. so afraid of being taken away. No, individuals can own stuff, but they can't own other people's means of survival. So that's an interesting conversation. And where does that conversation land? Who gets to say, I mean, this is also, now we're getting to like, the, you know, this, this edge thing, you know, all the beautiful things that are occurring on the edges. Give me an example of where you see these brilliant ideas actually landing in policy so that things are changing. Okay, well, the community land trust model, we were mm. talking about that earlier. I set I started this eco village in Vermont, using that model, and people in the eco village own the little place that their home site was built on, you know, so they own their home and they own the little piece of land their home was built on. But the rest of the land in the eco village was shared cooperatively. And we had anytime you wanted to do something in the community land, you had to engage the community to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an example of subsidiarity, subsidiarity, meaning, you know, the level of impact of a particular action should reflect, should be participatory with the stakeholders who are participating in that impact. So if something impacts you, you should have a voice in what happens there. And the principle of subsidiarity was one of the key principles of the Earth Charter. Remember the Earth Charter? I do remember the Earth Charter. Boy, that was a time that we thought really things could change, huh? Yeah. And it is used in some European countries now as a, mm. as a policy mechanism, as is um, the, what's the other one I really liked out of the Earth Charter? Agenda 21. Well, Agenda 21 came out of the Earth Summit. Right. Um, and it was sort of the panoply of things that we needed to do to, to change the Earth. And then there was Local Agenda 21, which was really about what we can do in local communities. And that turned into a lot of places just like, okay, we're going to have a recycling program. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, we needed recycling programs back then. Back oh. when said, everything went in the trash, you know, and, and people were not open to that at all. Um, so. But no, the, it, the other one was, there's the subsidiary principle, which which basically says the level of impact should be the level of decision-making. Right. And also, oh, the precautionary principle. Right. You know, if you're proposing something new, you should prove that it's not harmful rather than leaving it up to all the people that are impacted by it to prove that it is harmful before you can put it on the market. And that also has a lot of traction in Europe, in, in the environmental regulations in Europe. Um, subsidiarity, right. you know, when we look at, at planning and municipal planning and policy, usually the local community in the United States has say over what happens in its borders. And if there's a development with a regional impact, 
DRI, it's called in Massachusetts, there's lots of terms for it, then that gets bumped up to the regional government. And the regional government has to have a say in it if it's going to impact more than one municipality. In some places, it's not true everywhere, but that is an example of subsidiarity at work. And, And also, you know, ownership in a way, because the ownership of the permitting process, the ownership of, of the kinds of things you need to do before you even have a business that locates somewhere, you know, fundamentally is a public function. And so, you know, we need to exercise our citizen rights to make sure that those things um, work well. Right. And so, um, ergo, we just were talking right after the 2022 midterm election, you know, and so some of those results are going to actually impact how many of these innovations at the edge will actually get, become more central to um, our choices. Yeah, we're in the middle of the muddle. That's what I'm what I'm hearing from you, you know, because you're, you're one of the people who knows the best all of this sort of like the mechanisms at the in the borderlands of, of the possible. You know, you know a lot of things about money, economy, ownership, you know, regulations. You know, you know a lot about this and you've been tracking it. And, and what I'm seeing as I listen to you is that we are just going to live in this, this sort of fertile and frightening time for the next like probably two or three decades, you know, where so many things hang in the balance and that the pressure of things hanging in the balance is going to push some of these innovations to the fore. And there's going to be places where we didn't realize we need to pay attention to. And then we have to like play hurry up. But in a way, living through this time is going to, it's going to be like the most demanding creative act any of us have ever undertaken. It's not theory. It's now practice. And there's lots of things that are available to us. There's lots of paint pots out there. Uh, And and it's reduced to this stupid polarization between like, oh, the Republicans and the Democrats. That's irrelevant to the fertility of what we're living in. Yeah, I think that's. A, I, I think we should abolish the private party system. Myself, I think it's done more harm than good. But you know, that's that's another conversation. And totally, I think it's also a symptom of the times. You know, you get more polarized when you get into crises, and we, we're in on any number of different crises. And and the polarization is both a product of the existing system trying to continue just the way it is. There, there's a lot of companies that want to keep business as usual, just the way it is. They want to keep producing totally. oil just the way they always produce it. They want to produce those products just the way they always produce it. People are really resistant to change. And when the world is crashing and burning around them, they're going to try and push the people off the land and enclose more of it, <laughs> right? They're going to try to take over the commons. They're going to do more. And, and that's the kind of thing that's going to bring about change, I think, because people aren't going to be able to tolerate it anymore. And, and the, you know, I talk to people of all political stripes from all over the place, and there's a widespread recognition that things aren't working well. I think there's a lot of blaming going on. You know, it's, it's all their fault or it's all their fault. That's a f- easy thing to do when things are going awry. You know, we need to look within. We need to also build our community structures, because that's the other thing I see is what could possibly go right, is that in the future, this great caring economy I imagine we're heading for in my best dreams is a community-based economy. You know, the little (laughs) 
pot of people I built at Headwaters, which is only eight households. It's not huge. Um, but that community is different than a family. And these little communities that we can build on and, and interact with as a community, I think, are the future of the planet. Because frankly, the future of the planet also depends on us going back to growing more of our own food. I know you're totally in touch with this and you grow food for your whole neighborhood, which is fantastic. <laughs> and that's what we were doing. We were growing food for the whole neighborhood and we were all the whole neighborhood. It's hard to grow food. It, you know, people think they can just go out and stick some seeds in the ground and no, it's, it's no. hard. No. We, I struggled for 10 years learning how to grow garlic, how to grow this and that, you know, just changing my whole idea about what it means to grow food. But if everybody, if everybody somehow could go back to growing some of their own food in an organic way that that could turn climate change around. Over 40% of the emissions that cause the problem in climate change are related to the food system. So we need to, we need to change the food system. That's right up. You know, food, energy, and money are, are th three totally. of them. They're all, they're all flows. If you think about it, all those things flow through the economy. Totally. And and the way they come into existence and the way they go out of existence are a lot of the problems with the economy right now. Maybe in the show notes, you're going to give us links to all the public education that you've done. You're a fabulous educator uh, about, you know, these large system flows and these sort of um, innovations at the margins and the common sense things in the caring economy. You know, I've it's like I can see the whole moving picture now. and. It, what it, I think it's going to take for me and all of us is, is basically to stay, if not in our best selves, at least our better selves, you know, looking at the possibilities that are emerging and, you know, giving things a try and, 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 and as you say, boosting others who are giving other things a try, not just being little like heroic one trick ponies, you know, I, I don't feel exactly hopeful talking to you, but I feel I feel almost excited that we're going to be in the middle of this grind. I know it sounds so wrong to say I'm excited because there's going to be so much suffering. But I think we all, anybody with a little margin of safety in their lives has an opportunity to stay awake, pay attention, ask questions, and yeah, tilt, tilt the, you know, tilt the boat one direction or another. I mean, really, it's like a little, little margin of safety and security in your own life so that you can tithe that to paying attention to the commons. Right. Um, and building yeah. community. Building community, I think anybody can do that. You know, exactly. Start to make those networks and connections and, and not feel so alone and isolated, you know, because that's where fear comes from. That's where a lot of the disruption comes from. You know, people that are alone and isolated are going to turn to like more consumption to fill those empty holes. And we exactly. don't need more consumption. No. We don't need more successful people. We need people that care for others. We need to have strong community bonds and strong, you know, connections with each other and in the natural world. You know, I spend a couple hours every day outside if I can just to be outdoors and to be in nature because that's just so yeah. important for our humanity. It's, and oh, yet goodness. there's people in the world that don't and, and they're suffering, I think. Yeah. Know? Lots. Anyway, we're going to need to wind this up. 
So I hope in our show notes that we can get more of your, you know, videos, audios, articles, whatever, so that people can can um, benefit from all you've done over oh so many years. And the song. <laughs> oh, right. And the song. Yes. She, yes. Gwen has a song and we're going to put it someplace on this. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gwen. It's so inspiring to talk with you. You know, an upbeat person talking about downbeat stuff, but in a in a way that sort of exudes possibility. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun and great to see you again. White folks, number one tribulation. Ownership means domination. Change ownership to change the system. It's the end. It's the end. It's the end. It's the end. It's the end of capitalism. The number two barrier to our dreams. Banker money and pyramid schemes. Change the money to change the system. It's the end. It's the end. It's the end. It's the end. It's the end of capitalism. Tell us number three's up on top. Monopoly markets need to stop. Change the markets to change the system. It's the end, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end of capitalism. Ecological bottom lines. Management fails every time. Management to change the system. It's the end, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end of capitalism. Measure happiness and well-being. GDP doesn't tell us anything. Change the metrics to change the system. It's the end, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end of capitalism. forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.